We're going to take God's word in our hands and turn to the book of Philemon. And, and as you do, we, we begin a series on the subject, as you saw in the video uh, before you, uh, on the subject of forgiveness and reconciliation. And we're going to do so out of one of the shortest books of the Bible, the book uh, of Philemon. 25 verses long. You could read it. Listen, you could read this passage of Scripture before I get out of my introduction this morning. That's how short it is. And yet what it lacks in words, it it packs a powerful punch on something that all of us could use some leadership and guidance on. The idea of forgiveness and reconciliation in our relationships with one another and our relationships with God. Now, some scholars believe that this little letter, this little letter in the middle of the the New Testament scriptures, is one of the things that was used to persuade society and culture as a whole to abandon the practice of slavery. And as important as that may be, the more important thing that is accomplished are all of the relationships, all of the hurts that this book allows to be placed under the cross of Jesus Christ and to be forgiven just as Christ has forgiven each and every one of us. It's written by the Apostle Paul, just as we learned uh, uh, that he penned the words of our last series out of the book of Colossians uh, that we had just finished studying. But I want you to know the connections with Philemon and Colossians uh, are more than just the writer of the letter. The book or the letter is written to a man by the name of Philemon. And Philemon was a man who lived in Colossae, that city where that Colossian church was at. In fact, the church of Colossae met in the house of Philemon. They didn't have buildings like we do today. And so the people gathered in Philemon's house. He was the host of the home church of Colossae. He was no doubt as a result of that a leader in that church. And Paul has some words of guidance and words of exhortation for this friend Philemon. What it means to be people who pursue forgiveness and reconciliation in all of our relationships. So turn in your Bibles to Philemon and and I'm going to give you just a a bird's eye view of what we're going to look at over the next three weeks. As we invest our time on the subject of forgiveness and reconciliation, what in the world is going on? Before I read the first seven verses of this passage, I want to give you a gist of the, of the letter of what's going on. Paul is writing to a co-worker and friend named Philemon. Philemon, we learn, is a man of means. A man of means who had household slaves. Now, before you get uh, too worked up about that and, and begin to think very bad thoughts of Philemon as a Christian who may have had slaves, let's remember what Pastor Steve told us during the message in Colossians chapter 4 about what slavery was like in the Roman Empire. It was very different than Western slavery, very different than the American slavery that we had. Slavery in the Roman Empire was something that many people uh, wanted to be a part of. It allowed for identity. It allowed for protection. It allowed for a place of belonging. And so Philemon was a Christian who, in fact, had slaves within his house, servants. And as a result of that, uh, we would see that this indentured servitude that Philemon had uh, was, was something that was a part of first century Christianity. But as we will see, what Paul is going to do is reorder the subject of slavery because what we're going to learn is the letter of Philemon is about a slave, Onesimus, or Onesimus, if you want to call him that. Onesimus is a slave of Philemon's. 
And at some point, we don't know how many slaves Philemon may have had, but we know Onesimus is there, and at some point during his time working under Philemon, Onesimus steals from Philemon. We don't know if it's goods, we don't know if it's money, but it was something of great value, and he runs away. We are told that he runs to Rome the largest and closest city of any kind of population, probably at that time nearing a million inhabitants. Rome was a place where fugitives would go to disappear. So we have Onesimus running away from Philemon, taking what he has, and he runs to to Rome to disappear. And who does he come into contact with? The Apostle Paul. We're not sure where they meet or how they meet, but he encounters the gospel of Jesus Christ under the teaching of the Apostle Paul, and they begin a relationship with one another, and and what Paul begins to hear is, hey, wait a minute, you're from Colossae? You're from Philemon's household? I know Philemon. I know the church at Colossae. I know the church that meets in your house. I know who you're running away from. And Paul writes a letter to Philemon reporting that he now knows where Onesimus is at, and he's calling Onesimus to return back home, back to his uh, Philemon's home, to then turn around and be placed not as a slave, the scripture will tell us later in the letter, but as an equal and a brother in Christ. And that Philemon's job is to forgive the debt that's owed and to allow Onesimus to come back and receive brotherly Christian love, not retaliation. What an incredible letter. A letter that reminds us, number one, you can't run away from God. Jonah reminds us of that, and Onesimus reminds us of that, that if you think you can disappear, you've got another thing coming. Number two, it shows us that the gospel isn't something we just read about, but we put it into action, even if it means we have to do the hard things this morning. And so as we look at this letter, as we look at this subject matter of forgiveness, we come to a text before us that begins to tell the entire story. Stand with me for the reading of God's word. We'll read through the first seven verses, and we'll jump right into our outline this morning. Here is what Philemon begins with. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Appia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me stop there for a moment, and I won't have you standing long, but a couple things. Number one, Paul's the writer, we know that. Timothy, Paul's spiritual son and disciple of Paul's, is with Paul in Rome in prison. We got that, we know that, because that's the same introduction we get from the book of Colossians. It's written to Philemon. And a beloved fellow worker. He's a good man, doing good things. Appia, what we know, is, is to be Philemon's wife. And so he's uh, showing appreciation to not only Philemon, but to his wife. And Archippus, many scholars believe, is Philemon and Appia's son. And so he's saying hello to the family. And he starts in verse 3 with the standard introduction, Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's how he starts his letter. I thank God always when I remember you, Philemon, in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the heart of the saints have been refreshed 
through you. Let's stop there. Father God, we ask your blessing on the reading of your word, the preaching of it, the hearing and applying of it, that you would be honored in all facets of this message. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we look to the subject of this letter, we come to the subject matter of forgiveness and reconciliation. And what can seemingly be an easy thing for us to say comes easy for us in the pew, we need to recognize this morning that forgiveness and reconciliation is one of the hardest things for you and I as human beings to be a part of. While it's easy for us to seek Uh, for someone to uh, seek forgiveness on our behalf, to ask forgiveness from us. While we love for forgiveness to be shown to us, we have a difficult time in asking and seeking for reconciliation and forgiveness to be given to those around us. One of the major factors and contributors to the destruction of our relationships is the problem of unforgiveness. Instead of living lives of tranquility, We live in a retaliatory age when we are wronged. As a result, we have people who are filled with all types of rage and and bitterness, unwilling to let go of wrongs done years ago. And what it does is it makes saying, I'm sorry, something taboo. Over the next three weeks, we're going to explore what it means to forgive and how it is to look. What reconciliation involves when someone wrongs you. So this morning what I want to do is I want to give kind of a, uh, a treatment to the idea of forgiveness and reconciliation as a whole. And at the end of my message I'm going to come back and deal with verses 4 through 7. And then uh, we'll apply what Philemon's got going on as, at the end of our message. But first of all, to understand what the biblical DNA of forgiveness looks like. We need to recognize there's a dilemma that we all face. There's a dilemma that we all face. Now why in the world would, would we, a church in, in middle America, in the year 2015, read and devote so much time and energy to a letter that was written to a guy we've never met, to a place we've never visited? Well, why would we devote so much time to that ancient letter? Well, the reason is, is because it's about forgiveness and reconciliation, and each of us have that as a struggle in our own lives. Why? Why is this issue of forgiveness and reconciliation something that is so vitally important for us to understand? Number one, because we must recognize this morning, we are hurt often by others. We are hurt often by others. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter how much you have in your bank account. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what kind of personality you have. I want to guarantee you something this week. Sometime this week, you will be hurt by someone else. You will be offended. It may happen by your spouse, a family member. It may happen by a coworker or a neighbor. It may happen by someone you've never met before But I can guarantee you sometime this week you will be offended. You will be hurt. Here's why. Because the Bible tells us this world is full of sinners. And what do sinners do? Sinners are selfish. Sinners are backstabbing. Sinners are evil people. And you're a bunch of sinners. 
and I'm a sinner. And because we have to live in this world as a group of sinners, we will inevitably hurt one another in ways maybe you don't even know. Today, I will guarantee you someone will leave this church hurt or offended because they came to church with a group of sinners. And so this is something we have to deal with. This isn't something that we can say, oh, this is important for the teenagers, or this is important for the old people, or the men need to hear this, or the women need it. This is something we all need to hear because we all are hurt. I can assure you this morning, a child is going to walk away this morning offended or hurt because something has transpired. Someone has wronged them. And we as a church and we as Christians must understand how God has enabled us to give him glory and honor by loving and showing forgiveness and pursuing reconciliation even when we are wronged deeply. Number two, what we need to recognize, not only are we hurt by others, but we by nature tend to harbor those hurts. The the poet Alexander Pope reminds us that to err is human, but to forgive is divine. And what we need to recognize is is that forgiveness and reconciliation is not our default. It isn't where we will inevitably go if we are left to ourselves. When someone wrongs us or someone hurts us, our normal human default is, what am I going to do to get back at them? What am I going to do to retaliate? How can I hurt them just as they have hurt me? Now, we do it passively, we do it aggressively, but in our hearts, human beings by nature are seeking to figure out a way to uh, add another wrong to the wrong that's been done to us, to add another sin to the sin that has been committed against us. Now, I want you to recognize this morning, I'm not talking simply about the oopsies that people do because we're a failed human race. What that means is just because someone uh, does something that offends you, they may not have meant it. And you may say, well, that's easy to forgive. But I'm talking also about forgiving someone who maybe doesn't deserve it. Someone maybe who continues in an ongoing way to offend or hurt you. What I'm talking about is a tall order this morning. To forgive someone who doesn't deserve it, who continues to offend you or hurt you, is something that, as Alexander Pope said, is divine. We want to tap into that kind of forgiveness and that kind of reconciliation. So we're hurt by others. And then we harbor these hurts. We push them deep down inside. Some of you this morning are dealing with hurts, and they are so deep down inside of you right now because it has been years since that hurt took place. And they're huge hurts. Please do not hear that when I talk about the need for forgiveness and reconciliation, that I would diminish, that I would diminish in any way the size or scope of the wrongs that some have done. Uh, In my first year of ministry, uh, I went through a great time of depression. And that time of depression was precipitated by a hurt that was done to me 20-some years prior to it. I thought I had put it away. I thought it had been taken care of. But it kept coming up. And unforgiveness and bitterness against that person and against God was big in my life. And, and some of us right now have just continued to push that, that hurt, that wrong, 
that's been done against you. Maybe it was done as a child or as a teenager. Maybe it was early on in your marriage. You've pushed it down. And what we're going to learn is that is not how God has called us to deal with the hurts. We're not called to harbor them. Now, the world tells us this. In a, in a book written in 1989 called Toxic Parents, the writer of the book tells individuals that it is not good to forgive. In fact, one of the chapters is called, You Don't Have to Forgive. It's okay for you to harbor ill feelings, anger, and resentment. It's okay. And while some of you may say, well, that's the road of least resistance, God says there's a better way to dealing with the hurts and pains that you and I struggle with. John MacArthur, in his commentary on the book of Philemon, says, no matter what the issue is, what the offense may be, a failure to forgive by a Christian is a blatant and open act of disobedience. Not only towards that individual, but also towards God. And yet, with the admonition before us, many of us choose the world's way the get a pound of flesh. The I will sue them to show them how wrong they were. I will repay evil with evil type of culture. And it will only produce in the life of a Christian things that bring disruption. Notice the second point this morning. After we learn that we're hurt by others, we tend to harbor those hurts. Notice what when we harbor them, there's disruption that unforgiveness will bring into our lives. Well, what happens when we just push those hurts and those feelings down? I want you to think about things that have hurt you in the past that maybe you haven't given to the Lord yet. Now, what, what's happening with those hurts and those issues to your walk with God and your walk with others? There's four that I want you to see this morning. When we choose to withhold forgiveness, number one, it changes you it changes you and others to the past. What, what it does for a moment, just picture this for a second. Take a hurt that you have. A hurt that, that you know someone has wronged you. Maybe it happened today. Maybe this morning. Maybe just a couple days ago. That hurt that you have, if you do not forgive and pursue reconciliation, what you do is put a pause button. You push the pause button on your relationship with that individual and your own relationship with life. And what you do is you say, I can't get beyond this moment, this place, and this time in my life and its history. And so what happens is, when you see that person, you're filled with rage because you continually go back to the place where they offended you. You go back to the place where they said that harsh thing about you, that place where they betrayed you, and, and you can never move on from that moment. But I don't want you to just think that you, that you have confined that person to that place, but you have also confined yourself to that moment as well. You have put yourself, you've chained yourself to that moment in time. Now I want you to see the idiocy of that type of response to hurts and pains in your life. All of us have failures in our lives. I think of, and it's maybe a good week to remember these days, I think back to Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan would miss the first three baskets of his NBA career. If we were to stop and hit pause on Michael Jordan's career at that moment, we would miss a lot of great stuff, right? Willie Mays would strike out in his first plate appearance and yet would go on to be a Hall of Fame baseball player, one of the best to ever play. If we stopped and said that failure is going to define him, we're going to hit the pause button on that, we would never have experienced the greatness of Willie Mays. Think about the political realm. Abraham Lincoln was a failure as a politician early on. 
If we were to cause him to be chained to that point of failure, we would have never experienced the greatness of his presidency in keeping the union together during the time of the Civil War. But what we do over and over again, when people wrong us, when people hurt us, when we hold things against others, we hit the pause button that doesn't allow them to rise above that very moment. Let me get a little closer to home. I'm a pastor of the church that I grew grew up in. And I will tell you, I was not the perfect choir boy or Sunday school kid, okay? Just ask some of the people that were around. And had they hit the pause button in that moment and said, Tim will never be anything better than that. We're going to consign him to his past. I would not be here this morning preaching to you. And yet what we do over and over again is hit the pause button. And can I tell you this morning, one of the things that we desire as human beings is a second chance. How many of you want to see a second chance when you fail? We all do. But the thing that we are least willing to give is a second chance to others. So we chain others and ourselves to the past. Number two, it causes bitterness to invade our lives. Bitterness isn't just a sin. Listen to me. It's a cancer. It's a cancer that eats away at your entire soul. And this cancer of bitterness must be fought against with all our might because what bitterness does is it gives you a nasty disposition. It causes you to be sarcastic and biting with your words. It causes you to be malignant towards others because it only can do one thing. Bitterness only produces one thing in your lives. It will destroy all of your relationships. It'll destroy all of your relationships. And so we're told in the scriptures over and over again, don't be bitter. Bitterness is known in the Bible as a spiritual poison that by its means defiles many. It's the source of countless spiritual and physical problems in the lives of millions of people today. Bitterness can be tricky because we don't always recognize it because it's not always on the visible surface, if you will. Like anger is. We can point out anger because we see anger. But bitterness, man, it can reside in our souls and that that poison can stay deep within us. Bitterness is an underlying problem that doesn't always manifest itself, but it dwells within the entire person. And so that's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 15, not to allow any root of bitterness to spring up and cause trouble. By it, many are defiled. Some of you right now are not experiencing Real relationships with people or real relationships with God because you've got a poison deep inside of you that you are unwilling to give up and it's the poison of bitterness. Someone has wronged you and you can't let it go. Someone has hurt you with their words or or with their their, uh, flesh and, and you can't give that up. And God says, hey, as my child, as one whom I love and care for deeply, bitterness is not the way that the Christian is called to live out his life. So bitterness is something we've got to be careful with. Notice, it causes an open door or creates an open door for the devil. It creates an open door for the devil. When we choose unforgiveness, we throw out, listen, the welcome mat for the devil to do his work. We till up the ground so that the devil can plant seeds of hatred in our lives. Paul saw how unforgiveness opened the way for the devil 
in the church at Ephesus when he reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4 to not let the sun go down on our anger. Now, let's, let's remember, so there's no confusion, it is totally understandable and even right at times for us to be angry. We reserve that right. But we're called in our anger not to sin, not to grow bitter, not to use that anger against others in a sinful way. Let us remember that one of the first sins of humanity was the uncontrolled bitterness and anger of a brother named Cain who was so filled with anger that he gets a warning from God himself, be careful, sin is crouching at your door and it will overtake you if you don't master it. And some of you right now are saying, you know what, Tim, my bitterness and my anger about that thing that is done to me, I've got it under control. It's all okay. And I've got it, and and I know you're saying it's a poison, but, but I've learned to deal with it. Let me tell you something. The devil is licking his chops, waiting for the right moment to allow you to be so filled with anger and such unrighteous discontentment that you will spring into action. Cain never would have done that in a moment outside of his anger. But when he was angry, he saw it totally fit to kill his brother and to come up with reasons why he could do so. So Paul reminds us that when we're angry, when someone hurts us, that what we need to do is we need to seek forgiveness and reconciliation as soon as possible. Uh, Some of us, what we will do when we are hurt and we are wronged, we keep a record of wrong. The Bible says love keeps no record of wrong. That we are not sitting there saying it just that he did it again. He just keeps doing the same thing. And as every time that your spouse or that individual in the church or in the neighborhood keeps doing that thing that angers you, you just keep adding tally marks. And as you add those tally marks and keep those records of wrong, you never resolve it. You grow more and more bitter. And at some point, the devil's going to put you in an opportunity, in a situation where his temptation is going to be too much to bear and you're going to be moved to action, and it will involve sin. So we need to address it biblically. We need to address it very quickly. And so when someone wrongs you, as soon as possible, you are to go and make right with that individual so that you can go on not being filled with anger for too long of a time. Number three, four, what it will do is it will culminate. It will culminate in a strained relationship with God. She said, you know what, Tim, I really don't care if I ever get right with that person. I can't stand their guts. I hate them. And I'm okay because what I do is I come into village and I know they're there. I know where they sit. And so I just won't sit next to them. I know what small group they're in, so I won't go to their small group. I know what ministries they're a part of, and so I will just stay away from them. And I'll do fine as long as I don't have to see them. I'll pray that the church continues to grow because as long as the church keeps growing, then there's a greater, greater chance I never have to talk to them again. I'm all good. Here's the problem with unforgiveness. When we choose to not forgive or withhold forgiveness from one, God says it has a direct involvement with our relationship with him. In Matthew 6, write this down for the sake of time, Matthew 6, 15. Matthew 6, 15 has words that should strike fear in every one of us who holds something against another because of the massive implications it has for us as believers. In Matthew 6.15, in the Sermon on the Mount, on the subject of forgiveness, 
it tells us that we are called to forgive one another our trespasses. And this is what Jesus says. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Now, I don't know what that looks like. And that's one of those verses that I just sit there and let it resonate in my heart. I don't know uh, the implications of, of what that means, but here's what I do know. I don't want my trespasses not being forgiven by God the Father. And when I choose not to forgive you, my brother and sister, a part of the human race, a sinful individual, and I harbor bitterness and anger towards you because of the wrongs you do, God says, I will harbor those sins, those grievances that he has against us. Let me tell you something. As a believer, you don't want that. You don't want God holding on to your sins, right? And I don't know how we balance that, that, that God uh, remembers our sins no more and all that, but here's what I do know. We've got to hold these things in context and intention, that God says that for, unforgiveness has a direct correlation to our relationship with God. It strains our ability to experience his blessing, his uh, blessing in our ministry, It allows us to be filled with guilt when we don't need to. It takes away our assurance of our salvation. Instead of being right with God and others, we continue to hinder the blessings and grace of God because we choose, instead of forgiveness, to hold things against one another. So why would we do it? Why in the world would we do that? Why would we harbor and hold ill feelings against others who have hurt us? Very quickly, let me give you five dark benefits of unforgiveness. I found this from a Paul Tripp, and he says there are five things why we as Christians choose unforgiveness over forgiveness, and they're dark benefits, dark meaning sinful benefits. Number one, power. There is power in having something to hold over another's head. There's power in using a person's weakness and failure against him or her. In moments when we want our own way, all we need to do is pull out some wrong against us as our relational trump card feels good, doesn't it? Identity. Holding on to one another's sins and weaknesses and failures makes us feel superior to them. It allows us to believe that we are more righteous and more spiritually mature than they are, and we want them to know that. So identity, power, entitlement. Because of all other person's wrongs against us, he or she now owes us Carrying these wrongs make us feel deserving and therefore comfortable with being self-focused and demanding. After all, we might say, I had to endure in a relationship with you and all the wrongs that you've done towards me, so don't I deserve and fill in the blank. It becomes weaponry. Identity, power, entitlement, weaponry. The sins and failures of another has, that have been done against us become like a loaded gun that we carry around. It's very tempting to pull them out and use them when we are angry. When someone has hurt us in some way, it is very tempting to hurt them back by throwing in their face just how evil and immature they are because of the things they've done. Weaponry, entitlement, identity, power. The final reason why we do it as Christians because it puts us in God's position. 
This is the one place we must never be, but it's also the position that all of us want to put ourselves into. We are wanting to be the judges of others. And yet, we are not the one who dispenses the consequences for another's sins. It's not our job to make sure they feel the appropriate amount of guilt for what they've done. But it's very tempting, even for Christians, to ascend to God's throne and to make ourselves the judge. Why do we choose unforgiveness over it? Because it's easy. Because it makes us feel better. Let me be blunt with you this morning. Do you this morning see the absolute foolishness it is for a Christian not to forgive? It impacts negatively on you. It hinders God's grace and blessing in your own life. And listen, it makes you a self-righteous jerk who thinks they've done no wrong. You can attribute that jerkiness to me. Okay? We become jerks. Is that how you want to be defined? Is that what you want to be known for? We live in a world full of sinners who are constantly hurting one another. And what we need to do as Christians is be a bright and shining light that we will not respond as the world does. But we will forgive. So where do we go? We turn to the definitive authority on forgiveness. We turn to the Scriptures. And the Scriptures are what defines for us what we need to do when we're hurt. So we turn to that authority. The Bible uses some 75 word pictures to help us grasp the importance that forgiveness plays in our lives, in our relationship with God, and and, and it does it in a couple ways. Notice here very quickly that it is in the scriptures alone that we understand how forgiveness is defined, how it's defined. Write that down in your outlines. The Bible shows us many different facets of what it means to forgive. Let me share some of the ways that the Bible talks about it. To forgive is to open the jail cell and let the prisoner free. To forgive, the Bible says, is to write on someone's IOU paid in full. To forgive is to pound the gavel and announce to the courtroom that the person who has wronged you no longer is guilty. The Bible speaks of forgiveness as one shooting an arrow so far that it can never be found again. The Bible speaks of forgiveness as if cleaning up and bundling up all the garbage in one's house so that when all come into it, they say that it's immaculate. To forgive is to take up an anchor on a ship so that it may sail the open seas. To forgive, the Bible says, is to lessen the grip you have on your wrestling opponent so that they might find victory. To forgive is to literally sandblast graffiti off a wall, leaving it so totally clean. Listen, who in your life this morning needs to see some of these word pictures from you? What hurt, what pain has been done to you that needs to be given forgiveness. The Bible, listen, doesn't just define forgiveness for us. It chronicles how God demonstrates forgiveness. You see, the gospel is all a picture of how God demonstrates this forgiveness for us. In Romans 5, verse 8, it reminds us of what forgiveness looks like. It's merciful, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While you and I were still sinners, 
while we were shaking our fists at God, while we were uh, giving, if you will, all kinds of obscene gestures to God in our humanity, God demonstrates forgiveness to us through his love by sending his son Jesus to die on our behalf. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how Jesus forgives. Notice, it is given to the offender who doesn't deserve it. Forgiveness is given with compassion and grace. That same forgiveness is done each and every time you and I trample the cross of Jesus Christ when we choose sin over holiness. God is faithful to cleanse us and to forgive us, 1 John 1, 9 says, of all unrighteousness. So you say, Tim, I can forgive when someone does something to me once, but what happens when they do it again and again and again? You forgive just as Christ has forgiven you. The parables display two options for us. So the Bible speaks and it says, okay, God demonstrates us. And then Jesus tells stories about forgiveness. In two parables, he displays for us what forgiveness looks like. In Luke chapter 15, we have the story of the prodigal son. Many of you know the story, so I won't spend a lot of time there. But a son asked for the inheritance from his father who hasn't died yet. So he says, Father, I wish you were dead. And since you're not dead, just give me the money that's owed to me when, I, when you die, and I'm going to go live my life. And he goes and lives all this wild and disobedient living, finds himself on Heartbreak Row, eating uh, food with the pigs, and he comes to a realization after his season of debauchery that life isn't going the way I wanted it to, and I'm in trouble, and what I'll do is I'll go back and I'll become a slave to my father. And maybe he'll say yes for me to be a slave, but I can never be a son. I can never have the position I once did, but I'm going to go back because life is that bad. And Luke 15 tells us when the son is still far off on his way back to home, the father sees the son and is overflowing with compassion and love and mercy and runs to the son and meets him and forgives him in that moment. And doesn't say, yes, you can be a slave. He says, you're my son. Bring out the fattened calf. Let's kill it. Let's throw a party. Let's put a ring on your finger, a robe. Let's restore you to exactly where you were before you left. That is what forgiveness looks like. And the Bible says there's a, there's a celebration that happens when we forgive one another. But then there's another parable and that other parable is found in Matthew 18. Write that passage down. Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant. The story goes like this. A servant owes a massive debt uh, to his master, a debt so large that the servant couldn't repay it in ten lifetimes. And so he pleads to his master, please, 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 master, forgive me the debt. Give me time to pay it off. Don't throw me in prison. Don't hold me accountable for my wrongs against you. And the master, filled with compassion and love, forgives the entire debt and sets him free. That servant then goes and does the unthinkable. He finds another servant who owes a minuscule debt to him. And the same response comes from that servant Please, please, please give me time. I'll pay it off. Please, please, please. I, there's reasons why I carry this debt. And, and I'll do whatever I have to to pay it off. The servant says no. He puts his arms around the guy's neck and he says, pay it now or I'm going to throw you into jail. All the other servants are watching and saying, wait a minute. The one who was forgiven a great debt now is unwilling to forgive a little debt. And word makes it back to the master. 
And the master brings that servant back into the place and he says, I can't believe you've done what you've done. You've been forgiven a great debt and now you hold the small debt against another. And what does the text say out of Jesus' mouth? Take that worthless servant and throw him into jail until he can pay the debt off. Forgiveness brings celebration. Unforgiveness brings imprisonment and pain. The Bible makes it clear over and over again. That forgiveness, listen, for the follower of Jesus Christ, write this down, is to be the default response when we are hurt. What that means is as Christians, we are called to forgive. Jesus, in speaking in Matthew 18 to his disciples, is asked the question by Peter, how many times should I forgive someone the wrongs that they do? And Peter, thinking that he's really spiritual, instead of saying once or twice, says seven times. He thinks he's got it covered. And Jesus says, seven times? No, brother, 70 times seven, a number of infinity, saying that we are to always be at a place of forgiveness. It is a command for us to follow. And the scripture upon scripture reminds us of that truth. So now let's bring back to the book of Philemon. Why is Philemon such an important book? It's an important book because of these truths. Because in one letter, we see forgiveness in action. So how do we get there? Notice, and i got to finish up here. Notice the description of one who forgives. What does it look like? What's our action steps this morning to forgive? Philemon's life and ministry show us what forgiveness looks like. I thank God in verse 4, he says, When I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love, and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Three things I want you to think about as you and I struggle with this calling and mandate to forgive. Number one, The description of one who forgives. Forgivers, number one, first, remember a sinner's need to be forgiven. The Apostle Paul begins this letter by saying, notice in verse one, I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I want you to notice he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of the Romans, boo-hoo-hoo, things are not going well with me. He says, no, I'm here for a reason. I'm here for a purpose. And one of the reasons and purposes I'm here is to proclaim the gospel to people I would never be able to proclaim the gospel to. And so I'm here to proclaim the gospel. But remember, Paul always remembers he's a prisoner. And I wonder if he recognized in that moment What opportunity I have to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ when I, in the early part of my life, was a Christian killer. Paul reminds us that each of us should be in prison for the wrongs we've done towards God. That we should be left condemned. That we should have a big F on on our foreheads reminding us that we are fugitives at law. But we've been forgiven. And so Paul reminds Philemon, hey, Philemon, I too am a prisoner who's been forgiven, and so are you. The reason why unforgiveness is so stinking ugly for a believer is because what it does is everything we base our faith on, we throw away and we hold sin and harbor bitterness, doing the very thing that we ourselves believe has saved us, we withhold from others. So remember, you're a sinner. 
and you are in need of forgiveness. When others wrong you, remember, hey, I am sure if we were to line up the group of people that have been hurt today, there's going to be some people pointing their fingers at me. Things I've said, things I've done. Hurtful things that I've responded with. I need to be forgiven. And so do those who hurt me. Remember, a sinner's need to be forgiven. Number two, have a strong relationship with God. In verses four through six, Paul tells us that Philemon has a strong faith. One that is actively and consistently seeking to honor God in all ways. But let me remind you of something very important. Just because you're great at ministry, just because you are viewed by many as spiritual, doesn't give you the right to harbor bitterness and anger towards others. Paul reminds us that we cannot compartmentalize our lives and say, well, I'm doing a lot of great things for God over here, so I can have my pet sin over here. I can withhold forgiveness because they've wronged me, and I'm trying to do ministry, and I'm trying to do the right thing, and they've wronged me. And so I have this self-righteous idea that I can withhold from them the love and the forgiveness that I have been shown as a sinner. Philemon has what you and I have. If we call ourselves believers, then we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And listen, unforgiveness is not compatible with the fruits of that Spirit. What part of unforgiveness involves itself with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? You want to hold on to your unforgiveness? Then, then you've got to start asking your question, am I filled with the Spirit? Am I filled with the Spirit or am I filled with myself? Because the fruit of the Spirit doesn't, doesn't seem to lend itself to unforgiveness in any way. So if unforgiveness is something present in your life, there's a good chance that the fruit of the Spirit are not in blossom. So you need to start weeding that garden. Letting that fruit to grow when hurts come your way. One final thing and I'll close. Philemon is spoken about as one who sought to refresh others. He seeks to refresh others. Paul says, man, man, you have been refreshing to me. He says, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Listen, as, as I close this, here's my calling for you this week. And, and to review maybe even last week. As people walked around you and were a part of life with you last week, listen, Village Bible Church, could they say, hey, Tim Bedall was a refreshment to me. He was a cup of cold water and a dry and steaming hot day. He refreshed my soul. Let me tell you one way that you can refresh the souls of those around you. Forgive them. And tell them that. When someone wrongs you, look at them deeply in their eyes and say, I forgive you. I love you. I myself have wronged many others, and one way I know that I wish others would, would love on me is to do what I'm doing right now, and that is to tell you, yes, you wronged me, yes, you hurt me, but I forgive you. I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. I'm not going to confine you to that moment in the past. I forgive you. And some of you as spouses right now, your marriage is hindered because you will not forgive one another. Take some time this, this morning and look to one another and say, I forgive you. That doesn't mean there isn't reconciliation that needs to take place and there aren't issues that need to be resolved. But it begins with forgiveness. Maybe your child has done something against you and you're harboring that or a parent Look to them and say, I, I forgive you. 
I'm not going to hold that against you because I don't want God to hold these things against me. Maybe it's a boss or a coworker, whoever it is. As we begin to embark on this journey through Philemon, let us default to refreshing others by forgiving them the wrongs they have done. Poet Pope was right when he said, to err is human, but to forgive is divine. Let's pursue that divinity through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for this time in your word and the opening of this new series and this letter out of the book of Philemon. I pray that this opening message starts us in the right direction, that it begins to cause us to ask questions. So Lord, I pray that in all circumstances, that in our hearts we would be ready to forgive. We're going to learn, Lord, in the weeks to come that forgiveness doesn't just mean that we let bygones be bygones and we forget the past, but what it means is we are not going to seek vengeance and sinful actions, but we leave those things for you to do in a biblical and the only way you can with righteousness and purity. But Lord, for our own good, for the good of those around us, for the sake of the gospel, I pray that whatever hurts, whatever wrongs are before us this morning, that we would seek to forgive as Christ has forgiven us so the world may see how salvation has impacted us and how we impart that to those around us. We love you and thank you for that forgiveness and ask for you to empower us in the days to come to show that forgiveness so we may refresh the lives of all those around us as Philemon did. Now send us forth from this place in a world that's going to hurt us and wrong us. Bring back the words of this message so we may apply the truth of your scripture to our lives and honor you in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.